Welcome to episode 52 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hi friends, welcome to yet another episode of the Empowering Ability Podcast. I am excited to bring you a really insightful conversation with Joe Dale, who is the Executive Director of the Ontario Disability Employment Network. And Joe and I have a great conversation around creating uh, a pathway or pathways for people with disabilities uh, to gain uh, employment. So uh, before I get into Joe's intro and a little bit more about what the podcast is about, I want to do some quick housekeeping. So in last episode, the uh, nine insights to creating a home for uh, people with disabilities, uh, I launched the option to subscribe to the podcast and to the blog for those of you listeners and readers that are getting value and um, learning and uh, getting insights from this work. And um, I mentioned I had done a lot of thinking around how to use the subscriber funds uh, from that. And first off, thank you to those of you uh, early subscribers. Uh, I really appreciate your contributions towards this work. Um, So anyways, when I launched uh, the subscribe option, um, I had done a bunch of thinking about it and I had made a decision to uh, basically take 80% of those subscription funds and uh, put those towards helping individuals to create uh, extraordinary, ordinary lives. So more or less, uh, the thinking was to donate those funds to uh, directly to people uh, so that they could use those funds to create the life that they want. I've done some further thinking about that and I've come to the conclusion that the best investment or return on investment for you people that are interested in subscribing and contributing is for me to invest those funds in further into this work by creating more resources um, and more tools for you and your loved ones to create ordinary extraordinary lives so that is what i'm going to do so all of those funds 100 percent of the subscription funds will be put towards this work and for you subscribers any uh paid resources that i create will be available to you for free for the time being um, and anytime going forward unless the cost of those resources becomes uh too exorbitant where um some of those resources become uh, paid whether you're a subscriber or not. But for anyone who's subscribing for the time being, uh, though any paid resources will uh, be free for you to access. So um, I will keep you updated on those and they will include things like uh, e-courses and training and learning modules uh, for uh, people with disabilities, their uh, loved ones, and for their supporters. When you think about if you're going to subscribe or not, um, maybe just consider the value that you're getting from the podcast. Um, so if you compare this medium to you know another medium such as purchasing a book, for example, when you purchase a book, 
you don't really know what you're getting. With this podcast, you do know what you're getting because you can listen to the previous uh, 50 episodes for free to, you know, experience what you're exactly what you're getting. So you know what you're getting. Uh, the other thing you can compare to is like a magazine subscription. So, you know, a magazine subscription is going to cost you, you know, somewhere 10 to $20 a month type thing. Um, and you might get one issue per month. So I hope this podcast provides as much entertainment value uh, as a magazine would. And hopefully it provides you even uh, more uh, value towards insights and um actionable things that you can uh, integrate into your life or your work or uh, the life of a loved one. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a, a comparable to um, to weigh the option of subscribing against. And I hope that you consider um, subscribing. Uh, again, you can do that at empoweringability.org. Um, also, again, I just want to reiterate, this content will always remain free. And if you aren't able to contribute, then uh, Please don't. Uh, please don't provide any uh, funds if you if you don't have the funds uh, to do so. And uh, there's other ways you can contribute, such as sharing uh, the podcast on social media or with your network. So uh, appreciate any way that you are able to contribute towards this work. Okay, so on to today's episode. There's a lot of businesses around the globe really looking for good people, and they're asking the question, like, where do we find good people? And there's also many people with disabilities that are asking, where do I get a job? And this podcast with Joe Dale, who's the executive director of the Ontario Disability Employment Network, also known as ODIN for short, explores that untapped labor pool of people with disabilities. And we talk about the benefits of employing people with disabilities for businesses. And we also discuss approaches that people with disabilities can take to gain employment. So uh, a little bit about Joe. Joe Dale, uh, he has worked in the field of disability for over 35 years, and he spent uh, the majority of that time addressing issues related to unemployment for people with disabilities. Um, he's an internationally renowned speaker um, who speaks to businesses, governments, and not-for-profits on the issue of strategic employment for people with disabilities in the workforce. And it's my pleasure to bring you Joe Dale. Hey, Joe, welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Thanks, Eric. Uh, great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, a privilege to, to have you on the podcast. So thanks for uh, giving uh, giving your time. Um, so, Joe, I, I know that um, you are very focused in on uh, supporting people uh, individuals with disabilities uh, to to find employment and not directly but uh, through uh, several strategies and and that's through the Ontario Disability Employment Network uh, also known as ODIN so I'd love maybe just to um, give you the opportunity to share the work that that ODIN does to um, to get us grounded for this conversation and then we can kind of use that as a, a jumping off point. Sure, Eric. That's great. Um, so the Ontario Disability Employment Network is a network of over 110 employment agencies from across the province. And all of these organizations are in the business of helping people who have a disability access the workforce, so to helping people get jobs. And we break our work down into really four core business areas. Uh, the first one being uh, engaging businesses, uh, building awareness, and educating businesses about the, uh, I guess, creating the appetite for businesses to consider hiring people who have a disability. 
And we do that through a lot of education and awareness building. Um, and then we actually work with the businesses to show them how to hire people with disabilities uh, successfully so that there's long-term sustainability for the business and for those new employees who have a disability. So that's the first area. Uh, the second one is we do a lot of work with uh, service agencies, employment agencies across the province to help build their skills and capacities. Uh, so we do a lot of training for their staff on how to get better at finding more jobs for people who have a disability and facilitate strategic planning and some quality assurance initiatives to ensure the services that they're providing are of high quality. Uh, thirdly, and uh, a lot of our members see this as one of our more important aspects, we do a lot of work with the governments, provincial and federal, around really trying to advocate and, and address policies that either help or hinder uh, the organization's abilities to help more people get jobs. And finally, uh, we do engage other stakeholders who are all part of the puzzle of helping people prepare for and get into the workforce. So that would include uh, doing some presentations and training with school boards uh, around how they can prepare students for the world of, of employment after they graduate, and uh, some focus groups with families and family groups around um, how, what their role is in helping their sons and daughters prepare for a life after school that would include employment. So we, we don't directly work with people who have a disability, uh, but we work with pretty many, much all of the stakeholders who are part of people's journey uh, to enter the workforce. Right. Okay. Awesome. That's that's helpful. So thank you for providing that that overview, Joe. Um, I'm I'm wondering. I think it might also be helpful if we kind of painted the the landscape for what the current environment looks like, maybe either in Ontario or Canada. And I'm sure it's there's similar. Um, trends and demographics across the globe, but um, what does employment look like for people with disability? Well, uh, to be, I guess, clear and candid about it, there are still a number of challenges uh, for people who have a disability when it comes to accessing the workforce. There are a lot of businesses that are unaware and uneducated around uh, how to engage people who have a disability in their workforces. Uh, but what we're seeing in the last couple of years is a drastic uh, change in that landscape, so to speak. Uh, we're seeing many more businesses interested in hiring people who have a disability, uh, willing to uh, consider the idea. Uh, um, and I think we've, we're moving a little bit away from the awareness side of it to the, how do I do it now? How do we do it as a business? What does it look like in our place of work? And, and how, what are the resources that can help us make this happen in a successful way? So, you know, some of the things that are happening is, I think for the last eight to 10 years, we've spent a lot of time doing general business education and business awareness, uh, trying to dispel the myths and misconceptions about disability and trying to demonstrate to businesses how people who have a disability can contribute in their workforce. And today, that's starting to pay off, along with the fact that businesses are just challenged because of the labor shortages in Canada. So businesses are now looking at what otherwise might have been considered as non-traditional labor sources. 
so that creates a lot of opportunity for people who have a disability. And we've seen more and more businesses open their doors wider and wider to this demographic uh, because of these various elements that have come into play. Yeah, that's that's great. So you're you're seeing that that shift in in um, in openness um, or willingness for businesses to to employ individuals uh, that have a disability. And I'd love to circle back on that um, in a in a moment. So we'll just put a, a bookmark there. Um, in terms of sure. in terms of um, like what the maybe the stats are in terms of unemployment for. Um, or employment, whichever way we want to look at it, uh, for people with a disability, like uh, the, I think across Canada, the unemployment rates like five and a half, six percent, somewhere around there. Um, what does that look like for people with a disability? Yeah, so it's it's a little bit challenging to put it into statistical forms because of the way statistics are driven, but I'll, I'll give you my best kind of analysis. Um, according to, according to statistics, Canada, uh, 49% of people who have a disability are not in the labor market. Now to be counted in that 49%, you have to have had, uh, employment at some point in the last three to five years, or you have to be actively searching for employment. So that 49% uh, doesn't include uh, people who have never worked or people who have given up trying to find a job. So it's a it's a low figure to begin with. But within that, um, 51% of people who are attached to the labor market, we're seeing anywhere between 16 and 25% unemployment rate for that 51%. So when you break it down, uh, you might, you know, realis- realistically and reasonably uh, assume that the unemployment rate or people who are not working, uh, people who have a disability, might be as high as 70%. And in fact, um, in the U.S., where they do their research a little bit differently, their stats uh, show that about 18% of people who have a disability are working. Um, so uh, we may do a little bit better than that, but I wouldn't suggest that we're you know, over the mountain in terms of how successful we are. Uh, but as I said, the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of shift and a lot more people becoming engaged in the workforce. Uh, but we don't, we haven't seen those statistics percolate to the surface yet. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, we would probably certainly expect the unemployment rate to be higher for people with disability, especially considering some medical needs and whatnot that, that people might have. But I, I think that like you're kind of uh, uh, stating or implying is that there's um, a lot of, of people with disabilities that are very employable. Um, and there's, there's lots of work that can be, lots of improvement that can be um, had there. So let's talk about the, the business um, side of things first. Um, sure. And you started, because this is where we put that bookmark in. So there was around like the, the how do we do it? So how do we employ um an individual with a, a disability from a business perspective. Um, and there's also, I guess the, a lot of the work that you do, I, I think is around what's the, what's the business case. So like, what's the benefit, what's in it for the, the sure. business to, to hire someone with a disability. So maybe let's start there and then we can talk about maybe your suggestions on, um, you know, our strategies on how a business can, can tack, like what, what are the tactics or strategies to actually go do that? Uh, sure. Uh, so I guess just to start with, I mean, um, 
we we have to be um, we have to understand that businesses don't know what they don't know, <laughs> just like the rest of us. So, mm-hmm. And and what we find is that uh, businesses are not really fully aware of uh, disability as a demographic generally. And uh, and so what we try to do is um, really illustrate to businesses what disability looks like in their community. And so when we talk to businesses, uh, we look at it, first of all, as a marketplace issue um, to really create that understanding and create a bit of that appetite. So when we look at disability in Canada, it's almost 16% of the Canadian population identifies as having a disability. Now, 16% is equal to the combined populations of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And in fact, it's the largest minority in the country. And businesses are shocked to hear that it's that high. And this is really only talking about those people who I declare that they have a disability. It doesn't count any of those people who don't declare that they have a disability. And it really looking to the future of aging baby boomers and people who are going to assume disability, it doesn't include any of that. So it's a very large demographic. And when you you take that 16% and you add family and loved ones to that figure, it's 53% of the population is directly impacted by disability. That's 53% of a business's customers. That's 53% of their current employees all impact by, impacted by disability, which has a very strong emotional connection. So that's kind of our starting point with businesses about really trying to understand what disability looks like in their community. And I think part of the challenge is that we've had community agencies for so long, uh, which have done a great job for the most part at helping to support people who have a disability, but it's really created that out of sight, out of mind context for the rest of the community in, in general, for businesses particularly. So that would be the starting point. Then we talk about, so what does what would this look like in your place of business? How do we convince that business that uh, people who have a disability can be viable within their workplace? And we do that through uh, showing a lot of case studies of businesses that have successfully hired people who have a disability. And we do that by trying to break down the myths and misconception and the stereotypes that businesses have around disability. Ultimately, we're trying to switch the construct from seeing people who have a disability through that lens of charity and pity to seeing people who have a disability as contributors within the workplace. And that's what business needs to see in order to buy in and to do this in a sustainable way. Mm, I love that. I love that. It, uh, I love, you know, it's the recognition that people with disabilities, um, have something to contribute and, you know, they have, uh, abilities that, uh, are, are valuable, um, to a business. So I, I love that approach, Joe. I'm, I'm curious, is, mm-hmm. is there a, case study or a story that comes to mind um, where you kind of supported a, a, a business through that that thinking or or um, through that shift to to go from I guess maybe being unaware of the uh, the contributions that people could uh, people with a disability could make to their business and and maybe through the process of, of you know 
um, hiring hiring someone or hiring people and and what impact that might might have made on their business any stories come to mind uh, yeah, sure. There's there's lots of them, actually. Uh, we're creating quite a catalog of case studies uh, with the businesses that we've been working with. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll start with one of the very uh, founding ones. Uh, it's a U.S.-based company, but I think it, it really kind of sets, for us, set the tone about how to think about this uh, differently. So uh, Walgreens in the U.S. is one of the largest uh, pharmacy retailers in the U.S., if not the world. And they started in 2006 uh, hiring people who have a disability in their warehouse and distribution center in South Carolina. And interestingly, they went into that distribution center when they opened it with the construct of hiring one person with a disability for every three hires, so 30% of their workforce. In in the end, though, they actually hired about 40% of their workforce turned out to be people who have a disability. at the end of the first year, that warehouse was the most productive warehouse of any distribution center in the U.S. Hmm. Um, so a year later, they opened a center in in Connecticut, and again, they went into that center with the construct of hiring people who have a disability. And in that case, 45% of the workforce was comprised of people with a disability. And that center that opened in 2007 in Connecticut has had the highest productive output every single year since opening in 2007. Not only that, but they've seen a 63% reduction in employee costs because of the other uh, benefits that they've seen, which has been lower absenteeism, uh, lower turnover, fewer workplace accidents, and all of these factors that in a business's mind have a cost attached to them. So what they're seeing is higher productivity at lower costs. And that becomes a a case study that other businesses relate to. All of a sudden, they're kind of looking at that going, how's that possible? How did you do that? How can I get my business to be more more productive at a lower cost? Uh, Because that equates to profits, right? Um, And interesting, when I went to that distribution center in Connecticut to visit it, and we took a, a whole load of about 15 business operators from Ontario with us, and we walked through the distribution center, and at the end of the tour, the the business people from Ontario were saying, "Well, where where were all the people with disabilities? We didn't see any, because what they saw was a seamless workforce." Now, as a professional in the field, I saw people with Down syndrome, people with autism, people with physical disabilities, every disability you could imagine, mm-hmm. and well represented. And what they saw was a seamless workforce. And that's what business needs to understand and, and needs to see is how would this look in my place of business? And is it a seamless workforce? So we took that case study. And of course, we're not really striving for a workplace that has 45% representation of people with disabilities. Ideally, if the broader community is you know, between 16 and 20% uh, comprised of people who have a disability, then that's what we'd like to see workplaces reflect uh, as well. So we've we've shown those case, that case study to Ontario businesses, and we've had a number of those businesses come on board and hire people with disabilities quite successfully uh, and achieve, in some cases, that 16 to 20% um, participation rate. You know, one of them... Uh, here in Toronto is uh, Mark Wafer, who owns six Tim Horton stores. And 
he had uh, 17% of his workforce was comprised of people who have a disability in all types of roles, not just entry level, you know, lot and lobby, but all through the business in different roles. And what he found was uh, his employees who had a disability had at 87% better attendance records than mm-hmm. his employees without disabilities. Uh, they produced higher at a higher productivity rating. Uh, he'd never had a WS uh, workplace safety insurance claim in over 21 years for his employees who had a disability. And he says he wishes he could say that about the rest of his team, mm-hmm. because those are, those are things that cost money. His average turnover was uh, 38% in an industry where the average turnover is 110%. So wow. if he figure, he figures his cost of turnover at $4,000 per employee. And if he's having a 38% turnover and the Tim Hortons across the street who's not hiring people with disabilities has 110% turnover, who's paying more money? Whose costs are higher? It's the other guy, not him. And so, interestingly, he said the the way it worked out was that his employees with disabilities had almost a 0% turnover, but his employees without disabilities uh, had a 55% turnover, still hmm. half of the industry average. And he, he puts it down to employees who are more engaged uh, in the workplace because they see him as an inclusive employer. Hmm. And when you think about it, he has... 12,000 customers a day, 6,000 of them, more than 6,000 of them care about disability because they either have a disability themselves or have a family member with a disability. So it attracts customer, greater customer loyalty and all of those other cost savings uh, when it comes to employee costs. And we're seeing the same um, results in every business that we work with, irrespective of what type of business it is. You know, we're, we're now working in a number of companies that are doing manufacturing and production work, um, and they're seeing the exact same types of results. Lower turnover, lower absenteeism, better safety records, which are all very big cost savings to a business. And in fact, sometimes that can offset someone who might be a little bit slower than someone else or someone who might need you know, a couple of hundred dollars worth of accommodation supports mm-hmm. to be successful. Those cost, other cost factors have a big impact in business. So it, it's not just, you know, how many units can this person produce? Therefore, they're qualified to be a great employee and, and receive a paycheck. It, it's all those other factors that come into play. Right. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing those, uh, those stories, Joe. Um, I, those are stories that, uh, that need to be shared wider and, and thank you for, um, for doing that work. Um, a, a couple of things come to mind for me, um, in terms of, like you said, they might be, um, you know, a little bit slower, but productivity is still higher, um, overall. And, um, I forget the name of the book that I was reading, but it, I think it was around like something around mindfulness that, um, slow is fast, right? So, if somebody maybe they're going a little bit slower, but they're you know they're being very precise, right? And and they're they're not having to circle back to fix mistakes because they're fewer fewer mistakes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. People who have a disability frequently is once they've been taught to do something a certain way, that's mm-hmm. the way they do it every single time. So yeah. we see uh, quality uh, mistakes and safety 
incidents happening because people are taking shortcuts and breaking rules where we find, you know, we've got to be careful not to stereotype people with disabilities as superhuman, but uh, often there's less, uh, less of that breaking the rules. Once someone has, has been taught something a certain way. Um, And the other side of it, I think, um, Eric, that is, is worth really kind of mentioning, and this is kind of going to move us a little bit into sort of families and what others can do. But um, one of the other things we see is that the the growth rate for people who have a disability, once they get into the workplace, is much, much faster than anything we've ever seen before. So we've seen people with disabilities in training programs, and two or three years later, their growth has been very nominal. We see people get into the workplace and three weeks later, it's hard to imagine it's the same person. Mm. And and I think that because of the peer relationships and the expectations are higher and people around them are not just people with disabilities, it's people who don't have a, a disability that's obvious. And, and, and so the role modeling changes and, and we just see growth um, that's beyond expectations. Mm, yeah, I love that. That makes so much sense. Just um, the environment, right, being a key um, mm-hmm. factor to that, and we adapt to our environment. Uh, another piece, just having the opportunity, right? Um, so often, mm-hmm. people Absolutely. with disabilities just don't have that opportunity, and when they do get it, um, they embrace it. So um, that's what comes to mind for me. Before we shift into kind of the um, where you were leading us there uh, towards the the family um, piece or the supporter piece, I want to circle back to Mark and his six Tim Hortons for a moment. Um, I, I, I like the fact that, um, you know, he's somewhere in that 15 to 20, 16% um, range in terms of um, the makeup of his workforce of people with disabilities because it represents kind of the natural um, diversity of, of a community, um, Correct. which is, which is awesome. And the other, the other question I guess I had, um, I'm curious in terms of, um, like sales data. So you mentioned on the, there's the cost savings piece, right? Lower turnover, which is a huge, mm-hmm. huge cost because of hiring and training, um, you know, safety and all the rest of that. So lower cost, but is he seeing a bump on the, the sales side of things? Like if he compared himself to other, um, <laughs> Tim Hortons? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, interestingly, um, uh, all six of his locations outperformed, uh, the corporate averages in 16 economic indicators. Hmm. And last, uh, I think it was about a, two years ago. Now, I, I should mention Mark has sold his businesses and moved on to uh, different work. But w- prior to him selling his businesses, all six of his locations ranked one, two, three, four, five, and six out of over 520 Tim Hortons uh, locations in the GTA uh, in terms of s- sales increases and transactional increases, which are their number one and number two indicators of profitability. Mm -hmm. So while he faced all those cost savings, his stores were the ranked one to six in the whole central Ontario, uh, Tim Hortons corporate locations. Wow. So profitability still. 
yeah, yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, that uh, that makes it. Uh, <laughs> to, I mean, uh, to me, that's an extremely compelling case, and it's like a well, it's not a why. Why don't we do this? It's how the heck do we do this, right? I mean, um, correct. It, it just makes so so much sense from from you know a profitability perspective to a community perspective to providing you know people incredible opportunities. Just so many so many wins that can be created. Mm-hmm. And I think by and large, that's the mess, the calls we're getting today is businesses asking us to show them how to do this. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done on the awareness and education and building that appetite and sharing those types of stories. Uh, but more businesses are contacting us today to ask us to help them do this because they want to know how to do it. Right, right. So let's let's shift gears, Joe, and, and, and talk about... Um, kind of the the family side or the um support side or the individual side um so when you're when you're doing that work um maybe you'd be able to guide us in the best way to approach this would it be best to share kind of your work with with agencies and supporters or um maybe if you had tips or suggestions on on uh, for families or or individuals um i'll kind of let you pick the the next path we're going to go down here well maybe um kind of with a with a little bit of a central focus on families, uh, but really the focus uh, crosses all those all those bridges, and it's really about raising expectations. Mm. Um, and that's to me that's a really vital um, topic that crosses you know schools and educational institutions, families, and service agencies. Yeah. So, can you explain what you mean by raising expectations? So I think, um, you know, one of the things that in general is that overall, you know, our expectations of what people who have a disability can do are too low mm-hmm. uh, and that we need to really raise our expectations of people who have a disability. So when I think of that, um, you know, part of part of what we have to do is identify the goal. What is the goal that we want for people who have a disability? And if we say that, you know, one of the goals is to have a job when they become an adult and leave the school system, then I think to achieve that goal, we need to create a different path for, for people who have a disability. And I, and I think it's a challenge for families who really have a lot, especially uh, families who have people with more significant disabilities or, you know, intellectual disabilities. We often see families that do battle with all of the services that are supposed to be there to help their sons and daughters. So whether it's the doctor leaving the maternity room, telling them what their child will never do or never accomplish, whether it's the school systems that want to kind of fix behaviors and fix things before they move into, you know, more positive goal setting um, and so forth. So, you know, if we say the goal is to leave school and have a job, then I think the path has to change and that has to change by, you know, in the educational system, for example, having uh, employment and having a job as a goal within the IEP system 
uh, and, a, and a central goal, not just an add-on or if at all. Um, so having it as a central goal. I think for families, if they want to have their sons and daughters um, have employment as a goal, then what happens at home, at home has to contribute to that. So, for example, do we talk to our kids about who have a disability about what they want to be when they grow up? Do we give them chores and responsibilities to start to learn some of those aspects of, you know, life that would be expected in a workplace? Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, we're often so busy trying to deal with challenges that we forget about the, the opportunistic things we should be working on towards the goals and the, and the strengths that we want to play to. So I think raising expectations and having uh, high goals, good goals for uh, people who have a disability really has to happen and it has to change how we, how all of the things we do, the path that we work towards uh, in getting to that goal. I don't know if I'm making myself terribly clear here, but you know, there's no magic wand that comes out when a young person turns 21 that says abracadabra, you're now ready to work. (laughs) You know, that happens through a lot of skill building that starts at five and six years of age, dreaming about being a princess or a fireman or whatever, and getting those chores and responsibilities around the home, whether it's setting the table or making your bed and, then getting getting into allowances that shows the relationship between you've done these chores, you're going to re- get a bit of remuneration for it. Um, you know, is it paper routes when we're 13 and 14? Is it good co-op placements in private sector businesses during high school? Is it summer jobs and after school jobs that helps young people learn not just what they like and what they're good at it, but what they don't like and what they don't want to do, which is equally important. Uh, so that by the time school's over, they're ready to then enter that next phase of life in the workforce. Mm. So, yeah, what you're saying um, makes a lot of sense. And I, I think what's coming across for me, Joe is um, as uh, for families, for anyone around uh, an individual with a disability is just to think bigger, to get out of that, I don't know if we want to call it a, a disability box or whatever we want to call it, but to, to not have that kind of um, deficits thinking, but um, to really, uh, you know, t- to really just think bigger and to be a champion um, for that individual to support you know, what their dream is in terms of what they want to be when they grow up. Um, because so I think so often it's, you know, even if, even if an individual says, you know, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a mechanic or whatever, you know, whatever that might be for them. Um, I think they can often get written off like, Oh, that you, you're not going to be able to do that. Right. And when, as soon as that happens, those lower expectations come in, that dream is killed. Um, and, and it's it's tough. Like it, 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 once you have people around you holding low expectations of you, you live up to those low expectations. Exactly, exactly. And and I think you know uh, w- what we really need to do is mirror the experiences of children who have a disability to that of their siblings as mm-hmm. much as possible. You mm-hmm. know, so you know, 
I may have wanted to have been a cowboy when I was five. My parents didn't squash that dream. Did they think I was ever going to be a cowboy? Of course not. Uh, you know, and when I was nine, the dream might have been to be a policeman. And when I was 13, the dream might have been to be a doctor. Like, so that's okay. Um, so long as you're, you're supporting that with those learning, those soft skills, those responsibilities, those con- areas where people contribute, you know, yeah. There, there's research out of the U.S. U.S. that shows that the the number one and number two indicators of successful labor market attachment for young adults who have severe disabilities is number one is having had a single paid job while in high school, and number two is having families and others around that individual who had high expectations. Right. So it's part and parcel of the experience of, you know, how do we mirror the experiences in life for young people who have a disability uh, with those around them, their peers, uh, their siblings and so forth. And and that's, you know, responsibility, learning responsibility, having chores, having part-time jobs during high school, figuring out what you're good at, figuring, figuring out what you like, what you don't like, all of those aspects that, you know, by the time you hit an adult, you've got a much better sense of preparedness for the world of work. Right. It's gaining that life experience along the way as you go through adolescence mm-hmm. um, that helps you be prepared um, for, you know, living into that life as a as an adult. Um, I think that's really important for younger families to hear. And um, maybe we could shift to talking about kind of... Um, People like, uh, I guess, families where uh, a son or daughter might be in their 20s, or I guess 20s to 40s, something like that, Um, which is typically, you know, families that I'm working with. And what I see is this, uh, I'll call it learned helplessness. So I see a lot of individuals with disabilities that have learned that other people will just do things for them. Um, and they kind of sit back and wait mm-hmm. for that, that to happen. Um, and, and it's often it's, um, parents or family just really trying to be helpful. Um, and, yep. but it, it actually does the opposite, right? Because now that individual is dependent, there's a dependency created when that doesn't need to be, um, and I'm not sure if you're, if you're seeing the same, um, from your, the work that you're doing. Yeah, I would say that there is a, a fair bit of that. It's, it's more, much more challenging, um, to have those young people that are graduating from school at 21 who have no interest or desire to work and no motivation to work. And similarly, you know, people who have, I guess, gone through what I would consider the last generation of school grads, those people between, you know, 25 and 45 who haven't worked and who have, um, you know, a a lifestyle. And I I think some of it comes down to, um, you know, what are the values within the family? And I understand the desire to protect and to support and and sometimes it's easier to do it for the person than to struggle through the process of that person doing it for themselves, whatever the task is. But, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's a challenge when you have a person saying, well, I might work, 
so long as I can have Tuesday afternoon off to go bowling and Thursday morning off to go swimming. Right. <laughs> you know, that 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 that's kind of a where we tend to land. Uh, but when you think about the rest of your of your your own personal life or your family or your children or your neighbors, you know, we work <laughs> and then we go swimming in the evening and we go bowling in the evenings or on the weekends, or we volunteer to contribute to our communities in different ways, but we don't do those things instead of work. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, fundamentally a kind of a values proposition within a family unit that needs to be considered. And it, the more, you know, there are a lot of challenges still to help people who have a disability get into the workforce. The more, caveats and conditions we put around that individual, Mm. the greater the challenges become. So I've had families come to me that have been desperate to have their sons and daughters get into the workforce. But when I pursue issues like that, all of a sudden there's so many conditions that make the task of finding a job that much harder. You, You know, none of the rest of us walk into an interview and start with, the days we can't work or the things we don't want to do or the time slots that we've got reserved for social and recreational activities. Mm. So the more things that we, the more conditions we put around it, the more challenging it becomes to find a job for someone who has a disability. Right. So, you know, really what we ultimately should be looking for is the same results uh, as anyone else. Um, and and figuring out those social and cultural things outside of the work hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So put the job first. Remove any conditions you might have. <laughs> you might be imposing on that employment, um, just like anybody else would. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. For those families uh, or individuals that are kind of in that, you know, they might be 25 years of age to, to 40 years of age, um, kind of like you mentioned. What, I guess, what uh, strategies or advice or or thoughts do you have uh, specifically around those people, if any? And I'm not sure if that's a fair question, but I wanted to see what might come to mind for you. Yeah, I, there is no magic uh, answer, but I think, you know, I think it's it's going to be more challenging for sure um, if if the groundwork hasn't been done. And, I, and then I think the starting point is almost like backing up a bit. So, you know, as an example, when we were teenagers, we might have worked part time at McDonald's. Um, but on graduation, we looked for more than part-time at McDonald's. And, and so for some of those people, it might be starting in those part-time McDonald's kinds of jobs, but not settling that that's the end of the road, you know, that, that that's, that's only a starting point. And, and I don't mean to pick on McDonald's. There's lots of full-time people at McDonald's and, and there's career opportunity, which is great. If you see progress within the, and, and career advancement within the business. Uh, but if you're, if you're only ever seeing, you know, two shifts of four hours a week in McDonald's, um, then you have to think about, so a year from now, where would we want to be? Do we want to be at full-time in McDonald's? Do we want to be five shifts, you know, five days a week, four hours at McDonald's? Do we want to be somewhere beyond McDonald's or elsewhere? You know, it's that creating that path 
and and I guess you just have to step back a little bit. But again, um, the family values have to come into it about, you know, this is an important aspect of life work, having a job. And, and then how are we going to support that person to have their social life fulfilled as well? And, and that becomes a challenge for many because, uh, you know, social life is important to everybody. You can't sort of take someone out of a, their network of friends and, and their social networks, uh, put them in a job and forget about the rest of their life. You know, that you, you have to then say, okay, so what can we do that's more intentional around evening activities or weekend activities where we achieve both the satisfaction and rewards of working and we have the social interaction that we need as, you know, to have full lives. Right. Yeah. So, no, it's not, there's no magic answer to that question, unfortunately, but I think uh, it's not not something we shouldn't be trying to work on. Um, but it, it probably means stepping back a little bit and saying, okay, we've kind of built in this dependency um, and this pattern of life. And how do we change that pattern of life now at this stage of, at this stage in the person's life? Right. And it's, what I'm hearing is it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be just job or just um, more a life of leisure or activities. It's, you know, you can figure out how to do both, but don't let those leisure and activities get in the way of the job opportunity. Yes, exactly. And, And I think all of us have full lives by, you know, having social activities and recreational activities and volunteer activities, but, but we don't do those things instead of working. Typically uh, we do those in addition to working and, and generally work is the priority. So as much as I might like to take Friday afternoon off and go bowling, uh, you know, I choose to do that on Sunday mornings because <laughs> right. I got to work Fridays. <laughs> right. And I think that's, that's the distinction. Rent to pay and, you know, food to put on the table and right. And that's no different for that's everybody has that. So, um, I, I think one of the other things I just wanted to kind of, um, summarize or circle back to you that, um, I appreciated you saying, um, where I agreed with was around, you know, for that, 25 to 40 year old individual with a with a disability and if they haven't had the you know that part-time job it was going back to that thread around uh conversation thread around um an individual it might be growing up in uh or sorry a a youth uh maybe they're in high school and have that part-time job in mcdonald's but you know that 25 to 40 year old with this disability might not have had any job experience, part-time job experience or anything like that so far. Um, so I, I, I like your suggestion of, you know, just kind of going back to how anyone else would start to develop those experiences or those skills, right? And, and okay, let's start with maybe a part-time job one or two days a week, or where can you go get that um, experience or those life experiences to to start to build your resume, um, but then not settling there, right? So if you get that part-time job one or two days a week or whatever that is, um, still have a vision for what you want to grow into a year from now. Um, doesn't mean you need mm-hmm. to stay in that part-time job for 10 years, um, it's how do you, how do you use that as a jumping point? Correct. 
Yeah. And it could be a variety of different part-time jobs. Again, uh, you know, if people have limited life experience, it's going to be, you know, very difficult to sit down and ask them what they'd like to be, (laughs) what job they'd like to do if they have limited experiences. If the more experiences that they've had, people have had, the better their decision-making becomes around what I'd really like to do a year from now or two years from now or tomorrow, you know? Right. right. Awesome. Well, Joe, there's, I think there's a ton of, uh, valuable insights in this conversation that we had for, um, for families and supporters of, um, of people with disabilities alike. So I'm super grateful for you coming on the podcast. Is there any kind of closing words or message that, that you wanted to, to leave the listeners today? So, so often we have, um, uh, people come to us, sometimes it's agencies, sometimes it's families, and they really question the whole issue around pay. Is this pay going to disrupt their ODSP? Um, is pay, pay, they might say pay is not important to my son or my daughter, so it doesn't matter. They can work for free or they don't need to get fair pay. And I, I think that's a, a, a big a, a very big problem to have that attitude mm. um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, just on the ODSP front, society values people who work and who pay taxes and contribute much more so than they value people who live off the tax system. And I, I'm not passing judgment on that, good or bad. It might be a bad thing that society views it that way. But in North America, we do view it that way. And so to see people working and contributing and paying taxes brings more value to that person in their community, first and foremost. Second of all, the way that the ODSP system is structured, the the combination of earnings from wages and a reduced ODSP payment is always, always, always more money in the individual's pocket at the end of the month. It's it's structured in such a way that that the person never loses money when you combine the wage money earned through wages with a reduced ODSP after the clawback factors. So that's a fallacy that people uh, will end up worse off if they work. And I guess the the real important thing is that we have to really work hard at ensuring that the rest of the community, particularly employers and supervisors and coworkers, see that individual in the workplace as contributing and see that person as valued and valuable in the workplace. And no matter how we look at it, if I have two people working side by side and one person is getting paid full wages and one person is either not getting wages, maybe they're getting a pizza slice at the end of the day, or maybe they're having their wages subsidized by the government, it it tells the rest of the world that that person's not as valuable as the person beside them who's making a full wage. And that's a real damaging long-term scenario, is that the perception of the individual who has a disability to be seen as valued is critical. And, And to reinforce a perception that that person is not as valuable as the person without a disability working beside them is very problematic in terms of the over 
all and long-term goal of seeing people successful in the community and being valued by their neighbors, by their coworkers, and so forth. So uh, I strongly, strongly um, fight against anything that looks like um, a reduced wage, a less than fair wage compared to coworkers, a subsidized wage. It just devalues that person in the eyes of everyone around them and the employer and the supervisor. Hmm. Further to that, if that's the perception, and businesses all go through economic cycles, if that is the perception, who's going to be the first one to lose their job when businesses start to decline in the in an economic cycle? It's going to be that person who's, you know, not seen as valued to the workplace. Right. Yeah. This that's a really important point, Joe. And it's, I think it's important to obviously important to add to this conversation. Um, it, it, like you said, it, it, the perception, um, that others would have on that individual, um, with a disability, uh, that they are of lower value because they're not getting paid is definitely true. I think the other side to that, um, conversation is that that individual will also feel like they themselves are of less value right so it's it's not just people like so if, mm-hmm. if that's in the mind of of everybody else it's definitely in the mind of the individual that's that's not getting paid for doing the same job as other people right yeah um yeah so so thanks for for sharing that joe i'm, I'm definitely in alignment in, in agreement with that um Joe, if, if folks want to learn more about kind of these case studies that you mentioned or um, get in touch with Odin, and I know you mentioned that you don't directly support individuals that um, that have a disability that are seeking employment, but maybe there's resources that you could direct people to, um, where would they go for that? Sure. The, the best place is to start uh, at our website, which is uh, odenetwork.com. And there's a fair bit of information there. And, you know, my contact information is there if people wanted to reach out. Um, as you said, I, we don't deal directly with people who have a disability, but we do uh, speak with family groups uh, often and uh, educators and businesses, of course, and service agencies uh, with our training and, and planning and so forth. Okay. Fantastic. Well, Joe, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast and and thank you to you and your team for the work that you're doing to, um, to create a better world for all of us. So thank you. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Joe. A ton of gratitude goes out to Joe Dale for joining me on this episode today and for Joe sharing his insights on the work that they do with businesses to create the awareness of the benefits that um, employing people with disabilities can create for their business and also for the discussion around helping families and supporters think through the strategies and the mindsets that they can take to help individuals with disabilities to gain employment. Uh, Such an important conversation uh, today. And I also appreciate Joe's words around fair wage. There's a lot of conversation going on um, in Ontario, uh, the province of Ontario in Canada, where um, Joe and I live. 
And there's also a lot of this conversation going on globally. And it's very uh, important that we think about what the implications are of accepting less than a fair wage for anybody, including people with disabilities. And it does send the signal to that individual, to everybody in that workplace, and to really the world that that person is not valued or they're not valued as much as their peers, which are getting paid um, a fair wage. So uh, strongly consider that... um, a perspective when when you're thinking about wage uh, for people. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast at the introduction stage that, that there's now an option for you to subscribe to this work, so to the podcast and to the blog. And you can do that by heading over to empoweringability.org. And that's ability, not abilities. And There you'll see a subscribe option, and this podcast is completely funded by subscribers. So thank you to those subscribers who have already subscribed, and thank you to those who are considering subscribing. Um, It goes a long way towards the costs of uh, producing this podcast and also allows for some investment in new content creation and for additional resources that I am building for subscribers, such as e-courses and learning modules, which you will get access to as a subscriber. So thank you for those of you that have subscribed and thank you to those of you who are considering subscribing by going over to empoweringability.org. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, If you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, Be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.